0: And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, a Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note the following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. For thousands of years, Claquat Sound was the home to many indigenous nations. It's a beautiful part of British Columbia, located on the western shores of Vancouver Island, and it features magnificent beaches framed by rocky headlands. There are several fjords which have some of the highest tides in the world. And due to the huge amount of rainfall, about 3,295 millimeters per year, the trees there, including the western red cedar and western hemlock, grow to record sizes. Humans have lived in the area for 4,200 years, but historians believe it could be at least 9,000 years. The Nootka people have inhabited Klaquat Sound for 2,000 years, and one group of the Nootka are the Quiot. Their name has been anglicized to Klaquat, and the area is named after them. They traditionally had a highly structured society that featured nobles, commoners, and slaves. They had traditions and legends and ceremonies that were an important part of their cultural identity. And while the history of this region and its people dates back thousands of years, our story is about an Indigenous chief who left his mark during a transformative time for his people in the late 17th century and early 18th century. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. Before we start, I want to apologize if I mispronounce anything in this episode. In the 1720s, the Klau Kwiat embarked on a war of conquest over the Esauista people. The war went terribly for the Esauista. Their territory was seized, and they lost access to the bountiful Pacific Ocean resources in the process as they became part of the Klau Kwiat nation. Little did the Clau Kwiat leaders know at the time but their conquest would have far-reaching consequences decades later as the age of European colonization and exploration would soon be upon them. European powers had begun to move up the Pacific coast from Mexico by the 1770s, looking for riches and new lands. And while they didn't find gold, they did find something very valuable, maritime furs. The Spanish Navy ship Santiago reached nearby Nootka Sound on August 8, 1774. In 1778, Captain James Cook recorded the Nootka, which was a misunderstanding of the pronunciation of the Nootchadnooth, the people who occupied the area. Before long, Russians, Spanish and English were all vying for control of the area and its profitable maritime fur trade. In 1791, the Spanish ships the San Carlos, commanded by Francisco Eliza, and the Santa Santorina, commanded by Jose Narvez and Juan Caresco, arrived in Claquat Sound. They were greeted by... Wiccaninish. Born in the late 1700s, Wiccaninish had inherited the land his forefathers had conquered in the 1720s, giving him immense power in the region. As the chief of the Klauwia people, his name means nobody sits or stands before him in the canoe, which exemplified his importance to his people, A tribute system developed under Wiccaninish, and and his family members controlled vast territories in the region. The Spanish may not have realized it at the time, but all fur trading in the area was about to go through that one man. As the Spanish explored the channels of the area, they made friends with Wiccaninish, who showed them five different settlements in Klaquat Sound, each with more than 1500 people living in them. The largest settlement was Guacaninich, and that was Wiccanish's home. Wiccan was quick to understand the areas and to the Europeans and the furs that his people could trade to the new arrivals. And to prove his friendship, Wiccan had 600 young men perform an elaborate dance for the new arrivals. In nearby Nookka Sound, there was another chief named McQuinna who was more than willing to trade with Europeans, and Wiccan wanted to have the upper hand. I did an episode about McQuinna, so be sure to check that out. Nunca Sound was further south and usually the first stop for Europeans, and Wiccan would lose out on very profitable venture if he didn't do something to entice Europeans to venture further. Today, Wiccan rival Maquinna is better known, despite their similar stature at the time. In fact, when CBC released the TV docuseries Canada People's History two decades ago, they featured a segment on Maquinna, but nothing on Wiccan However, in the late 1700s, both men were equal in stature and wealth, and had a rivalry and respect for one another. They were also closely related, which helped them form a strong alliance between their peoples. McGuinna's daughter, Apina, was supposed to marry Wiccaninish's son, but it was not known if that actually came to be. Regardless, with Europeans arriving in his shores, Wiccaninish focused on building a trade empire. First, he ensured his authority by insisting that all negotiations were done on the ships themselves rather than allowing the Europeans to trade furs in the villages. By having the negotiations on ships, of which he was always part of, he controlled those negotiations of the indigenous in the area. In 1787, Charles William Barclay, a British explorer and trader, arrived with his wife Frances and crew and made extremely profitable trades. He named various inlets for Wiccaninish in his honour, such as Wiccaninish Sound, which eventually became Clacquat Sound. A year later in 1788, John Mears, a British sea trader, arrived flying a Portuguese flag Hoping to set up a British trading settlement using Chinese workers. Mears flew the Portuguese flag because of strained relations between Britain and Spain at the time, and he felt it was safer to go with a neutral nation and establish a new settlement. Knowing of the power and influence of Wiccaninish, Mears sought to trade with him specifically. And when they met, Wiccaninish arrived with a fleet of canoes and boarded the ship, welcoming Mears to his territory. Mears wrote that Wiccaninish wore luxurious outfits, as did his envoy. He described him as robust and good looking, who was just a little beyond the prime of his life, which likely puts his age around as early to mid-30s. During the initial trade, Wiccaninish made every attempt to ensure that Mears was happy. In return, Mears gave Wiccaninish six brass hilted swords, a pair of pistols, and a musket with powder. This was just the gift giving ceremony, which preceded any trading transaction. Once the gift giving ceremony was complete, the two men got down to business. And in return for various items, Mears received 150 sea otter pelts. Aboard the ship, Wiccaninish was fascinated by the large vessel, and he quickly grasped how the ship worked. He was able to guide the ship 10 kilometers into the sound, which impressed Mears, who wrote, quote, Wiccaninish proved an excellent pilot, and not only in his own exertions, but equally attentive to the conduct of his canoes and their attendance of us, end quote. Six days later, Wiccaninish again piloted the ship through rough weather while avoiding a sandbar to a protected harbor near one of his villages. Mears was charmed but commented that Wiccaninish was a tough bargainer, and at times Wiccaninish got the better deal, although Mears said he was never cheated. Mears simply stated he was defeated by Wiccaninish's cunning ability to trade. To ensure European trade stayed within his control, Wiccan forbade anyone to be aboard the ships without him being present. When strangers boarded the ship without the permission of Wiccan they were seized, although most got away. Mir's crew begged for clemency for the sole man that didn't get away, but Wiccan refused, and no one knows exactly what happened, but it's believed the man was killed. Knowing he couldn't control trade forever, Wiccan did seek to work with the other indigenous chiefs, even those under him, to keep himself in power. As a result, Wiccaninish brokered a treaty with Chiefs Hanna and Atuch, keeping himself as the middleman. Through the agreement, all furs would be sold to him, and then he would sell them to the Europeans until a later, undetermined date when unrestricted trade would be allowed. This gave Chiefs access to trade goods from Wiccaninish and it ensured he remained in power as the central authority for all trade in the area. Mears wrote Wiccaninish was, quote, both loved and dreaded by other chiefs. He estimated that Wiccan led about 13,000 people, which would be more than some minor British nobles at the time. Now, it's likely that number may have been exaggerated, and historians believe the figure would be close to about four to 5,000. Mears traded with both McQuinnah and Wiccan but as time went on, he became apprehensive of trading with the latter because of Wiccan hard bargains and the seizure of indigenous people who went aboard trade ships without permission. Mears began arming his crew during trading and on one occasion when Wiccaninish saw this as he arrived on board, he felt threatened and disrespected. He left the ship in anger, refused to trade and forbade anyone else from bringing supplies of fish and vegetables to Mears' crew. Mears attended a ceremony on land the next day and he gave Wiccaninish a brass-handled sword and copper plate as a token, asking for forgiveness. In return, Wiccaninish gave him five otter skins and a supply of fish. And with that, the conflict was under the bridge and trading resumed. Seeking the power that European weapons had, Wickeninish asked them to be a part of any trade going forward. Mears had little choice but to agree to Wickeninish's demand, and the weapons greatly increased his power and territory. To try and get some leverage, Mears attempted to trade for land, and while he was successful in that Inukkah sound under Maquina, Wickeninish refused. But, unbeknownst to either indigenous ruler, a much larger issue began to develop around the trading across the pond. Mir's trade in Nootka and Claquat Sound were being done under the Portuguese flag but they weren't sanctioned by either London or Spain. This caused an international dispute in 1789 between Britain and Spain over who exactly had the rights to navigation and trade in the region. It eventually escalated into what is now known as the Nootka crisis which inched slowly towards open war. The Dutch joined the British and France joined Spain. Then the French backed off and without their help, Spain couldn't ensure defeat over the British and the Dutch so the crisis was resolved peacefully with agreements allowing British and Spanish subjects to trade up to 10 leagues from the coast. Spain also renounced exclusive trade rights and land claims in the area. However, during the crisis, the Spanish built a fort in Nootka Sound, McQuinnah's territory, and impounded British ships, including the Argonaut and Princess. The captains of both ships were sent on the Argonaut to Mexico to be prisoners. A chief under Wiccaninish, Calacum, approached the fort in a canoe with his family to protest the incursion on the land, and he was shot dead by a Spanish soldier. In response, McQuinnah and his people moved farther away and began to visit Wiccaninish more often to solidify their alliance, in the face of growing european aggression when the crisis ended a few months later the british captains and ships were free and returned in the argonaut to nootka sound on october 18 1790 the ship reached wiccanish territory and sent out longboats to navigate deeper into his domain each of those boats disappeared and it's not known what happened to them in response the argonauts captain john colnett Detained two of Inish's brothers and two of his chiefs for two weeks in an effort to get and Inish and his people to search for the missing crew. Eventually, Inish's sister agreed to go on a search and returned four days later with two of the men. So Colnett released his captives. The rest of the lost crew were never found. Colnett thought nothing of the incident, believing it was resolved. Inish, however, planned his revenge for the grievous insult. He bided his time for months until December when Colnett's ship was repaired due to earlier damage and was ready to set sail. On New Year's Eve, four canoes approached the Argonaut as the crew ate. From the canoe, men scaled the side of the ship silently until a deckhand noticed them and alerted the crew, who quickly emerged from the galley firing their muskets. It's not known how many were killed in the altercation, but the ship quickly sailed from Wiccaninish's territory and never returned. Now, despite this incident, Wiccaninish continued to trade with Europeans and built up his weapons arsenal in the process. According to Spanish naturalist Jose Mariano Mazzino, by 1791, Wiccaninish had 200 guns, two barrels of powder, and a considerable amount of shot. On August 11, 1791, John Kendrick arrived on the American ship. The Columbia Rediviva and Wiccaninish signed a contract, giving him a small patch of territory. Wiccaninish knew that by giving him land, Kendrick would set up a permanent fort or settlement and make trade easier and more profitable. Overall, the relationship between Kendrick and Wiccaninish was described as cordial. Late in 1791, Captain Robert Gray built Fort Defiance in Wiccaninish's territory with his permission. And throughout the winter there were diplomatic relations between them. However, those living in the fort were afraid of a Wiccaninish attack. Despite there being no indication of animosity, the fort had 4 cannons, 40 muskets as well as pistols and ammunition to guard against Wiccaninish, who by all accounts was in awe of the structure. He even attended a Christmas dinner at the fort. Oddly, that's when Captain Grey began to believe there was a looming threat against the fort and he began to cut off diplomatic relations by refusing Wiccaninish and, and his people entry to the fort. What Grey didn't know was that Wiccaninish was planning an intertribal attack. Gray falsely believed the attack was meant for him and his fort, and not that intertribal attack Wiccaninish was actually planning. And as the days and weeks went on, Grey became more paranoid. Eventually, Grey quickly got his ship ready to leave through the evening before their departure and his crew fired cannons into the forest to frighten away any would-be attackers. He also had his crew take three boats to destroy an unoccupied village with 200 houses in Wickeninish's territory, before leaving for good. Now it's not known what Wickeninish thought of the entire event, but it didn't stop him from trading with Europeans, although he took a less flexible approach from then on. One man who traded with Wickeninish, named Captain Bishop, said his position essentially became to take it or leave it. He said, quote, he prides himself in having but one word in a barter. He throws the skins before you. These are the furs. I want such an article. If you object, they are taken back into the canoe and not offered again. During the 1792 trading season, 26 ships arrived in Wiccan territory. Captain George Vancouver and a clerk on his ship, Edward Bell, commented that nearly every man in Wiccan settlements had a musket. He said they threw their spears and bow and arrows on the ground, and used muskets and pistols almost exclusively. This also made them bolder in negotiations, Bell wrote. Wiccaninish, who resides at Cloquat Sound, seems to be the emperor of the sea coast between Defugas Strait and Woody Point. Wiccaninish's property is very great. For the most part, seasoned crews that arrived in Wiccan territory knew that good relations benefited everyone when it came to trading. Captain William Brown, however, wasn't one of them. He focused on getting furs, and good relations were an afterthought as he allowed his crew to commit thefts and violence against the indigenous people in the area. He complained about the gift giving protocol that Wiccaninish required and how little he got in return. And what happened next has since been proven to be untrue. On August 5, 1792, claiming that he had been attacked by Wiccaninish, Captain William Brown landed on Wiccainsh’s shores and robbed the local people, taking pelts and smashing houses. They counter-attacked but lost two men in the process. And as I said, all of that was proven to be not true. Then on August 8, 1792, Brown enticed four chiefs, one of whom was Wiccaninish’s brother, to go to his ship. He had them whipped and threw the chiefs overboard where they were shot in the water. Wiccan appealed to McQuinnah for help and, despite their efforts, no justice was ever served for Brown's attacks. Now due to the growing hostilities, Wiccan and his brothers refused to board ships by themselves. They also insisted that individuals from the ship be sent ashore as hostages until the trading parties were back safely from the ships. And despite the growing apprehension towards Europeans, Wiccan knew he could use them and their weapons to expand his territory. He unsuccessfully attempted to use Europeans to attack his enemies, and at one point he suggested the crew kill two indigenous men of a rival nation, in retaliation for them killing a crew member of a ship he was visiting. He was also unsuccessful in trading for entire ships, even though he tried, and for the next few years, trading continued as usual. Then, in June 1811, while Wickaninnish was away, Captain Jonathan Thorne attempted to trade with Chief Nakumis. A minor chief and a representative of Wickaninish. Nukemis was not responding well to Thorne's offers, so Thorne grabbed a fur, shoved it in the chief's face, and threw him overboard. Now, Wiccaninish was not going to let that slide, and from that slight came the Battle of Woody Point. On June 15, 1811, an indigenous woman warned Thorne of an attack, but he didn't believe her. Soon after, a canoe with 20 men arrived aboard the ship to trade furs and offered to sell them very cheaply. Another canoe with another 20 men followed close behind. The first 20 men were hiding weapons under their clothing and Thorn, hoping to make a big profit, violated orders by allowing 40 indigenous men onto the ship. Among the men were a few minor chiefs. Now the history is murky, and it's believed either Wiccaninish or Nukemus were aboard the ship at this point. Blinded by his own greed, Thorn didn't realize until it was too late that the entire ship and crew were outnumbered and in danger. As he ordered the crew to hoist the anchor and sails, a chief gave the signal to attack. Thorne and two of his officers were killed immediately, but for the most part the rest of the crew were unharmed. And as night fell, the surviving crew went below deck to the rifle storage as the indigenous went back to shore. Knowing they could not sail the ship with so few hands, they decided to take a small boat in the darkness and make their way to Fort Astoria to the south. One man, the armorer, named Weeks, was gravely injured, and he remained on the ship. The indigenous forces returned the next day to plunder the ship, and Weeks lit the black powder magazine. The massive explosion destroyed the ship and killed between 100 and 200 indigenous men who were on board. The crew who fled into the night were later captured by either Wiccan or McQuinnas men and tortured to death. And as for Wiccan this is where he begins to fade from history. It's not known if he survived the explosion. But a story arose years later that may shed light on his fate. On October 3rd, 1837, 26 years after the destruction of the ship by the injured armor, the British ships Sulphur and Starling arrived in the area of Nootka and Klokot Sound. They were on a mission to see if Russians were setting up a base in the region. Captain Edward Belcher wrote, there were no signs of Russia, but indigenous people gathered around the ships and among them was an older man who was calm and dignified. This is believed to be either Maquina or one of his descendants. In talking with the man, Belcher was told that Wiccaninish still lived and was now the most powerful chief in the area, even more so than Maquina or Nukimis. Maybe this was Wiccaninish's son, or perhaps the great chief survived the explosion, and lived on to become the most powerful chief his people had ever known. We will never know for sure. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at Wiccan Inish. Next week, we're looking at the first female senator in Canadian history, Corrine Wilson. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Wiccan Inishin, asserting territorial jurisdiction and possessing Mears Island. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, from John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at Canada, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.